So I think everyone knows my answer by now, so I'll ask you. What's the worst accident you've ever been in? Well, being a woman in the United States of America is pretty painful. Sure. But... I did break my arm or my wrist when I was in kindergarten. I was sitting on one of those um, Flintstone cars and I was fighting my sister to like get inside of it and I fell off the top and I just like twisted my wrist backwards. Ew. Yeah. Huh. I would ask what about you, but like you said. I think everybody knows. I think everybody knows. I think everybody knows the answer to that. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Remember that time we watched Misery? You mean the 1990 Stephen King adaptation of the novel of the same name? That's the one. Hey. I'm Nicole. I'm Topher. And we're the Horror Babes. Accurate. Here to talk about horror. (laughs) Yeah, and like, what is this, the fourth time we've done a Stephen King adaptation? Yeah, because we did Pet Cemetery. Carrie. Carrie. This. What was the The other one? The Mist. The Mist, yeah, that's right, that's right. But yeah, so um, we'll be following our normal format today, just in case you're new here or you don't know what that is or need a little refresh. What that means is that Topher will take us through who made this thing, shout out the cast and the crew, and then I'll take us through the plot. And then in our third installment, we will analyze said plot. But before that, do we have any horror news this week? Yeah, and it's good news. We love good news. We need good news. Most of it's good news. Okay. Two out of three. I'll take it. (laughs) So uh, we're just going to kind of de-endorse a movie that we thought was going to be really dope. Yeah. Uh, Turns out the star of that movie is even worse (laughs) than her character in it. Uh, Yeah. So we're going to pull back on the uh, the whole dash cam thing. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out Annie Summer Hardy is... uh, right piece of shit and i don't want to endorse any project that she's a part of and neither does nicole so that's that was that the bad news that's the bad news okay great. or like the like oops we made a mistake news no better do better exactly good news is we have two amazing looking horror movies on the horizon both of which are very indie both of which i'm very excited for yeah so first of which is gonna be slashback Mm-hmm. Uh, we just watched the trailers for both of these. They came out, I want to say, a week ago. The trailers. The movies are coming later this year. But... I want to say, what? We're behind. <laughs> <laughs> Usually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but Slashback is a first-time uh, film for writer and director Nyla Inuksuk. Uh, She's an indigenous uh, filmmaker and uh, basically was like wanting to make this movie. And the producers, it's some of the producers of The Witch. Mm-hmm got behind it and we're like oh yeah no we'll fund this fuck yeah um so how would you say the vibe is i was thinking the thing meets stranger things yeah i i definitely i definitely can see where you're getting that um where where everything is kind of just like kind of looks like a teen drama but then turns into the thing yeah and it's like so it's the, the premise is that it's set on the longest day of the year in the arctic where it is 24 hours or more of daylight yeah. Um, and what happens with that much daylight? Nothing good. Yeah. So the, these, I guess, aliens? Because we see that light in the distance over the lake or whatever. Some sort of, yeah. But they clearly are, like, taking over shit. Like, people and stuff. But also a polar bear. So. Yeah. We'll see. Anytime an alien wants to take over a polar bear and fight teenage Inuit women, I'm down. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. But yeah, it looks really good. Um, I was reading some background on it. Apparently, uh, so that was, that was the production story. So the filmic, uh, Nyla, uh, Nyla Enixuk said like, no, I'm going to use indigenous girls for this movie. Hmm. But there was no one, they didn't want to disrupt the village that they were filming in by like bringing in a whole production crew and like having to fuck up the already rough housing crisis okay. for indigenous uh, yeah. Canadians. So they were like, well, all right, guess we're training this entire town to be in the film industry. You said indigenous Canadians. Yeah. Right? For a second, I thought you said indigenous comedians. Oh. <laughs> and I was ready to, I was ready to put money down on that. Sure. <laughs> but no, no, uh, uh, indigenous folks from the Arctic. Uh, that's what I should really say, because they're not... Uh, anyway. So, yeah. Anyway, um, basically, they built an acting school and, like, helped everybody out and, like, taught people how to make films instead of fucking up the entire local economy. I appreciate that. Right? That's the right way to do it. I agree. It's a win-win. But, yeah, it looks you really... Learn ex- things. Exactly. You don't, you know, fuck with things. Exactly. I like it. I'm it's a good. fan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is her, like I said, this is her first feature. Um, she's, she did a TV documentary um, a few years ago, but um, she wrote it with uh, Ryan Cavan, who, again, I don't think anybody would know. This is definitely his biggest project. Um, everything else has been pretty small, mm-hmm. but exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked for this. Yeah, I guess it looks as, like a lot of fun. I guess as long as they were um, not forced in to do anything, like forced to learn these things and actually felt compensated for their work. I'd say that's fair. Yeah. You know, and like, it sounds I, like that's the story. I, I had a second thought about it. Like, like that is cool that they, they uh, taught people things instead of bringing in all of these, you know, non-indigenous folk to do the work. But I kind of hope that it was consensual and also less uh, colonialist yeah like i don't know I, I don't know the full story like by the sounds of it i i hope it i hope it was a a, a good thing but i don't it know it sounds that way yeah. i just had a second thought of like maybe 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 not <laughs> right i can understand that but it sounds like everything was done above board okay yeah as far as i can tell yeah um don't don't quote me on that um but it sounds like it so the other film that we were watching the trailer for that i think we're both pretty stoked on is Hypochondriac. That movie looks crazy. Super nuts. Um, I'm, I'm getting, like, some creep vibes, but that's mostly because of the wolf suits. Fair. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the premise is, the, the log line is, a young potter's life evolves into chaos as he loses function of his body while being haunted by the physical manifestation of his childhood trauma. So, uh, we, so we're is, talking, like, very straight up allegory. Here. Yeah, no, it's explicitly like he's a queer man. It sounds like his mother was abu- it we we know from the trailer that his mother was highly abusive, that she had maybe like Munchausen's by proxy or something like that or whatever. Which I'm once again fascinated by like yes. in a really weird like that's the only true crime stuff that I actually really am interested in. Right. Like I'm not interested in a lot of uh true crime stuff but but that just I, the psychology behind it just fascinates me. I, I know this about you, and I think the I think the audience does too at this point. <laughs> mainly because well, mainly because I don't understand it, you know. Yeah. So uh, Addison Hyman is the director here, uh, and also wrote it. He is an up and comer. Uh, his very very first credit is from 2019. It seems like he's done a bunch of um, self produced things, 
And um, yeah, I, I haven't seen anything that he's done, but I'm I'm interested to see this. Um, and it's starring uh, Zach Via, who was in American Horror Story uh, Double Feature yeah. as uh, Richard Ramirez, and Devin Gray, who was in I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. So I'm interested to see what they do. I mean, it's it's clearly a queer love story inside of a horror film yeah. with horrifying mother trauma. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, that's it for news for right now. We're just, uh, again, 2022 shaping up to be the bomb. Yeah. All right. So as that wraps up our horror news for the week, Topher, who made this thing? Well, sure. I could keep talking. Yeah. Yeah, why don't you? Why don't you? Well, it wasn't John Carpenter because his career was kind of in the toilet at this point. Uh, <laughs> well, it happened. And the, la- the last and only uh, King adaptation he did was Christine. So this was directed by the one, the only, one of my top five. If you don't know, then that's weird. Rob Reiner. Yeah. Right? Son of Carl Reiner, you know, but one of my favorite nepotism babies. There's so many. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, Jesus, he's been all over the place his entire life because, again, his father's a major deal. But let's see. He did oh a little thing called This is Spinal Tap. Hell yeah. I love that fucking movie. <laughs> Maybe a movie you've heard of uh, When Harry Met Sally. I love that movie as well. I can cry and quote the entire end <laughs> at the same time, goddammit. Maybe you've heard of, I don't know, like... Stand by Me or The Princess oh. Bride. Oh. <laughs> like, a few good men. Damn. So I don't know. He's he's uh, he's been around. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I I adore him as a director. I think he's done so many different films, and they're all so interesting in their own right. Yeah. Now speaking of The Princess Bride, you might have heard of this other guy, William Goldman. Maybe. You know, he may or may not have, like, written the novel and the screenplay for The Princess Bride. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and a bunch of other shit. <laughs> Again, a, a writer who I think is just beyond incredible. Because, you know, he wrote something like, uh, I don't know, All the President's Men, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yup. <laughs> Marathon Man. <laughs> like, you know, he's been around once or twice. Yeah. But no, this was absolutely like a, this was a heavy hitters movie. This was like a, okay, we're making a Stephen King adaptation. Rob Reiner already did Stand By Me. It did really well. That was a little bit of a hit. Mm-hmm. And, but we kind of took a swing on it. This one is like, nope, we are putting all the fucking money in this movie and hiring everybody we can. Yeah. That's like just reliable as fuck. So yeah, obviously based on the Stephen King novel, as we said, it stars none other than Sonny Corleone himself, James Caan. Mm-hmm. And I do want to say we didn't mean to be crass with dropping this episode. We had actually planned this was this has been on our slate for months for this week. Um, but we do want to say, you know, uh, peace to his family and rest in peace to him. He's an incredible actor. And uh, it's sad to hear that he passed just last week. Rest in peace, sir fantastic career and the man hated interviews more than anyone in the world and i love that he gave them just to cuss out interviewers Mm. real king shit this is also the breakthrough role for one kathy bates yeah i she was it's wild to me that she was unknown before this i mean kathy bates i don't even put this i'm not even gonna put this lightly kathy bates makes this movie 
Oh, and then she steals the fucking show while she's surrounded by thunder. She manages to be the lightning, and then goes on to play similar but different characters. Like when I think of even her, like in Rat Race. Yeah, take a drink. Um, I'm mentioning <laughs> Rat Race when when she's at the bot when she's like. Selling squirrels on the yeah, side of the road yeah. to Whoopi Gold or trying to to Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> and Whoopi Goldberg's daughter in the film. Um, there's something about it that's very similar to her disposition in this movie. And then we have her as Miss Hannigan in one of the Annie movies. Um, yes, yes. And then we have her, you know, in Ameri- the Mom and Water Boy, American Wa- American Water Boy, American Horror Story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> SOS. Um, I've been, I've said too many words today. Um, and just, I feel in a really weird way that this movie really, even though she's played a lot of, like I said, very different, but similar characters. Like, I feel like this movie really just was like bread and butter for her. Like she showed up and did the damn thing and said, Oh, I know exactly how to act this. I know exactly what I need to do. And then just did it. Like if you put, of course there are a lot of other actors that you could put in there who would do this, this um, part justice, but it would not be the same fucking movie. Without there Kathy there Bates. is no misery without Kathy Bates. Like James Conn is fantastic in this. He's really good in this. Yeah. But Kathy Bates makes this movie. Jesus. It's, a stunning performance. It's yeah, I see why it launched her career. And she's been working nonstop ever since. It makes so doing much horror, sense. doing drama, doing comedy. Like she did a fucking Adam Sandler movie in nine in the mid nineties. Like yeah. I love that movie. Waterboy. Yeah. Yeah. Her and Farutza Balk, killing it. Yeah. Um, now we have three legends of the screen, which I thought was a really interesting pull for the three people that were pulled for our minor roles. Because this is only a cast of five characters. Right. And one pig. So Richard Farnsworth plays Buster, the town sheriff slash chief of police. In a great joke scene between him and uh, our uh, uh, book agent. Can I speak to the town sheriff or the chief of police, whichever one is present right now? Which do you want? Whoever's available. Well, they're both me. (laughs) I knew that is. It's such a Stephen King joke. That's such a you joke, too. I was like, I, I knew you were going to say something about it. <laughs> I love it, though. It makes me really happy. But yeah, uh, Richard Farnsworth, I know him best personally from The Natural with uh, Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. Baseball movie from the 80s. It's amazing. Go watch it. Um, but he was also in Anna Green Gables. He did a bunch of like cowboy TV, like Bonanza and things like that. But just kind of like a character actor, just a guy who bopped around doing his thing, you know? Yeah. Next, we have Francis Sternhagen, which great last name, uh, as Virginia, his wife. Ever sassy. Mm-hmm. Um, you were saying you know her from Sex and the City. Yeah. Because she plays... She plays um, Trey's mom, Bunny. Or as I like to call him, Edie McLaughlin. Yeah. Uh, but I know her from Cheers. She plays Cliff's mom. Mm. Cliff, the voice of Ham, from... Uh, or the Biggie Bank from Toy Story. Okay. Yeah, Cliff Clavin. And then finally... We have no less than Lauren Bacall herself as Marcia Sandell, our book agent. Makes perfect sense to me. I, she's so perfect for this role. She's amazing in it, too. Again, this is another person who's giving a fucking career performance. And she gets just, her own title card. Yeah, as she deserves. <laughs> it's like special cameo or something, Lauren Bacall. Or it's like special appearance by Something like yeah. that, yeah. Well, she was more... I mean, she did other things after this, but not a lot. Um, this was like her kind of... 
This is her last major, major film, I want to say. She acted for another 14... She acted until her death. So she acted until, like, 2014 was her final uh, final role. But, but yeah, Lauren Bacall of Bogey and Bacall fame. I love her. Mm-hmm. And, God, like, just, just looking at her uh, headshot on IMDb, you're just like, yup, I see it. Oh, she... Her and Selma Blair look very, like, similar. Oh, they really do. I see that now. Yeah. Selma like... Blair should play her. Yeah. I mean, she only died eight years ago. It's a little weird, but... Yeah. <laughs> now, our actual last but not least credit is a little pig by the name of Misery. Misery! <laughs> <laughs> what a cute pig. Misery! She was so well-trained. Her little sow. She's a little, little snout. So cute. Mm-hmm. She goes... I do want to mention, though, that um, music was done by Mark Shaman. Yeah. I was gonna get. To, I was getting to the the crew, but yeah, that's that was my next one. That's awesome. Yeah, he's Jesus Christ. I mean, first worked with um, Rob Reiner on When Harry Met Sally. Yes, and then they had a long working relationship after yep. that. Um, Mark Shaman has done just about anything and everything. <laughs> like, it's almost an egot here because so co-wrote um, the uh, musical, the Broadway musical version of Hairspray. Yep. Um, and with then, uh, Firestein, yeah. And then did, um, has done numerous albums that we all adore, like Mariah Carey's uh, Christmas album, co-produced that, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, like, uh, tons of Broadway credits, tons of, like, cabaret credits, tons of um, uh, commercial music credits, and then tons of movie credits. So, 10 out of 10, just wanted to give that a shout out because I truly love a lot of Mark Shaman's work as a musical theater nerd. Likewise. Did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, too, I think. Yeah. Um, also did one of my favorite musical films, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Also worked on Tick, Tick, Boom. They were actually yep. a cameo in mm-hmm. that. It's kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ. Mark Shaman has done everything. Did the com- uh, He composed George of the Jungle. Nice. But, like, yeah. Just has had one of the most illustrious careers as a composer. Yeah. I think he, he might be an EGOT. Is he not? I don't know. I didn't read that I'd, far into it. I'd be shocked if Has he Has at least been nominated for, like, each. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, Smash. Worked on Smash, too. That oh, would yeah, be the Emmy. Yeah. 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 W- worked on um, the song Let Me Be Your Star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of people who got their break from When Harry Met Sally, uh, you might have heard of a little guy named Barry Sonnenfeld. You know, shot... Actually, his first big one was Raising Arizona with the Coen Brothers. Oh, interesting. So he was a friend of the Raimis and the Coens. Or Raimi and the Coens. Cinematography, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then he shoots Big, shoots When Harry Met Sally, shoots Miller's Crossing, and shoots Misery. And that is his last cinematography credit. <laughs> because then they were like, oh no, you're a director now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, in a row, right? From 1987 to 1990, shoots Raising Arizona, Three O'Clock High, Throw Mama from the Train, Big, When Harry Met Sally, Miller's Crossing, Misery. Yeah. That is a run. That is a run. That is, and those are all gorgeously shot films. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he ends up directing The Adams Family. That's his first directing credit, 1991. Mm. Adam, for Love or Money, 1993. That same year, Adams Family Values. Then Get Shorty. Then all three Men in Black films, Wild Wild West, Big Trouble. Moves. Wild Wild West kind of does not great for his career because that movie was a flop, even though I loved it as a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. And then he did the Netflix series of unfortunate events, and is currently working. Uh, and then worked on uh, Schmigadoon. Nice. The the yeah. uh, King and Michael Key and uh, um, 
Yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So, yeah, he was one of those who just, like, he shot just, he shot, like, five or six movies in three years, and they were like, yeah, it's our guy. Yep. <laughs> Signed, sealed, delivered. Yeah. Um, but he's a very good director. I wish he would work a little bit more, but it's, he's moved more to production these days. Yeah. And finally, our editor, because uh, I do love the editing in this film. It's really crisp. Um, is Robert Layton, who has worked with Reiner and Christopher Guest a bunch because, let's see, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, American President, Story of Us, Best in Show, Mighty Wind, Shall We Dance, Rumor Has It. Like, <laughs> I gotta say, a lot of... When I say this was a, a crew of just like, yes, we're hiring the best in the field. That's what I mean. <laughs> well, I also gotta say that it's really... It's actually... Um, it's actually refreshing to watch a movie that has so many people's hands on it who may like n- not necessarily have done a lot of horror films. Yeah. Because this movie reads differently. It, it definitely read reads like a horror film. It is a horror film. It is a horror film, like but it doesn't like necessarily read as one. And I think that that works in its favor. And we'll certainly talk about that later a little bit deeper in our analysis section. But I really listing all of these people's credits and hearing it all in the same um, sentence makes a lot of sense to me now based on how this movie presents. Right. And I think it's really cool. And yeah, like I said, we'll talk about that a little bit more, dive a little bit deeper, but um, I think it really works. Yeah. Um, and also just again, like I love when there's just a competent cast. It makes me really happy. Absolutely. Thank God. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of people being competent, um, can you tell me what the fuck happens in this movie? I'll try. Um so we have Paul Sheldon, who is a very famous novelist. He writes um, this Victoria, these Victorian romance novels um, that features a character whose name is Misery, Misery Chastain. Um, Which is he, funny because Chastain is like the chaste. Yeah. Anyhow, sorry. that Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I'm always here for unimportant facts that I will bring up later. My name doesn't mean anything because it's an offshoot of Nicholas and they won't give Nicole a specific meaning. It just means victory of the people. That's what Nicholas means. And Hell I'm, yeah. Well, That's I re- a dope name, though. But I refuse to just be reduced to that. Like, give me a different one. I get that. Why is it just Nicholas? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a Latin thing and it's derived from... I don't know. Anyway. Hmm. Anyway. Wow. Tangent. Um, no, it's Greek. I want some. I think Greek. Anyway, I want something. I want something else. I want something different. I want well, to be different. I like your name. Um, anyway, um, so he's he's desperately wanting to focus on more serious stories. So, um, he wants to be done with what made him famous, essentially. Um, yeah, he's tired of this. He's tired of this character. He's tired of this story. He's line. tired of writing fluff. He wants to be taken seriously. Yeah, he these are feels... these are like these are like a, a Harlequin romance novels. Yeah. Fabio would be on the cover. Exactly. Um, so he's writing this manuscript for um, for a new novel that he's hoping will launch his you know career after writing all of these um, stories about misery. Um, he's traveling from Silver Creek, Colorado to New York, but he's caught in this blizzard, and then he gets into this terrible accident. Um, the yeah. car flips over. <laughs> it's upside down. He's unconscious. And then someone finds him and brings him to her remote home. It's revealed that it's Annie Wilkes, who is played again by Kathy Bates. And I forgot Lizzie Kaplan played her in Castle Rock, too. Oh, I need to watch that. I know. It's in the second season. 
So then Paul slowly starts to, you know, regain consciousness and is, finds himself, he's, he's bedridden, he has broken legs, he has a dislocated shoulder, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Again, I think, I think you, I think you um, chose this subconsciously because you relate to this character. <laughs> a writer who's bedridden with a broken leg? Never. <laughs> nah. Um, Annie's claiming to be his number one fan and, you know, goes on and on and on about his novels. He's kind of like, okay. Um, And then he's just like, fuck it. He lets her read his new manuscript. She is... um, Horribly upset. She's very upset by this new work um, because he's killing off misery. Well, it's it's, at first it's because she doesn't like all the profanity. Oh, sure. So we see her be like... Why are they cursing so much? This is not what you do. This is this is evil words and evil work, right? Like it's this classic like Stephen King hates Christians. Yeah. He or he Stephen King hates religion and religious zealots. Yeah. And so obviously the villain in the story, that's how you know that they're a villain in a Stephen King story is like, mm, "Do they like Jesus? They're a villain." That's a good point. <laughs> that's a very good point about his films or his stories. Um so then, but then she she discovers that misery dies at the end. She goes into a rage, and um, this reveals to Paul that nobody knows where he is. There's been, you know, your typical kind of horror film things where she's, you know, saying like, oh, the roads are closed. But then she kind of slips up saying like that she drove to town or something. She's like, oh, no, all of them but this one road is closed. Yeah, and, then, and I, I called the hospital. It's like, oh, oh the, the phones, phones work? No, just no, not in this, mine. Yeah, yeah. There's all these, and she is in the middle of nowhere. Like she's on a farm. You can. It's kind of. It's kind of great though. Like the subtlety that um, Kathy Bates has with her acting. When you know, it's like it's believable enough. But we all know that she's scrambling. She's not. She's not great. She's good at this, but she's not great at it. This. Um, scheme that she's pulling yeah yeah well and he's also so addled like she's giving him all these pills and he doesn't know what they are yeah um so she goes into this whole like you know fit rage yelling and all this stuff and we're we're just like okay (laughs) um so she ends up forcing him to burn the only copy of his new manuscript um, she knows everything about him. He's trying to tell her that, you know, his agent has 20 copies. It's already out to publications, but she's like, nope, I know you. I, I've read all about you. I've seen all of your interviews. I know that you only, as a superstition, you only have one copy. That's why you're here in the first place. Um, you were yeah. at, you were at that, um, silver, what is it? Silver, silver Creek, Creek. Uh, the Silver Creek in, Lodge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it's your superstition. Like you always write your stories there. So she catches him bluffing. He burns it. Um, and then he's kind of well enough to get out of bed. Um, she pretty much forces him to start writing a new version that's called Misery's Return. And he's bringing the character back to life. Right. So then one day Annie is out picking up paper because she gets like the wrong... Oh, when she flies off the handle at him because she gets the wrong paper and he's like, yo, I'm sorry, but this shit smudges. And she's like super manipulative too. She's like, you should appreciate everything that I do, like blah, blah, blah. Um, it also, she also reveals that she um, is is divorced, like she had a partner. Um, right. And she talks about her heartbreak a little bit. 
Um, and then one day when she's out getting the paper, um, Paul starts stockpiling whatever these, I guess they're painkillers, but, you know, whatever he's, she's actually um, giving him. Right. Um, he, he is pretty smart here, actually, by, like, asking her to dinner. Like, once he finishes the book, he's like, we should, we should celebrate. We should do this right. We should have, like, wine and all of this. And then... Yeah, his classic, I want a Lucky Strike cigarette... Because I used to smoke, but I don't anymore. Oh, a yeah. A bottle of Dom Perignon. Or sorry, Dom Perignon. Perignon. Yeah. Um, Dom Perignon. Which I feel like was just a choice on set. Like, I don't think that Reiner directed that moment. Even though he's, like, notoriously, like, a meticulous director, that feels like a Kathy Bates, like, choice. You know what I mean? It's great. Um, and then they're sitting at the table, and he's trying to figure out how to get, you know, the painkillers into her glass of wine. Um, and... He's like, oh, we should have candles. Yeah. So um, he he then tries to spike her wine with the crushed painkillers, but she accidentally knocks over the glass and the candle, at, you know, at the same time. And then he's just like dumbfounded. He's like, I don't know what to do now. Yeah, because he's been stockpiling all these painkillers. I'm just going to knock her out. And they're gone. Only time I have seen an ethical drugging on film. True. I stand by this drugging or attempted drugging. Right. And then later he finds like this scrapbook of all these newspaper clippings. Oh God! All about her past. Killer. She's essentially a serial killer, um, like Angel of Death, but also seems to have. That's what it seems like. That's where she started, right? Yeah, because she's a nurse. That's why she has all of these things and like was able to kind of come to his aid. Um, she has a wheelchair and you know enough for him to like get around because she was a nurse. And it turns out that she was tried for all these deaths of um, infants in the hospital where she worked. Um, but then and her dad and her ex husband. And... Oh yeah, she's killed many many people. But she's got a body count in the like at least two dozen. But has never um, been convicted because of a lack of evidence. Yeah. So. Um, she it also turns out that she had quoted lines from from his misery novels during her trial. Um, and then Annie discovers that Paul has been sneaking out of his room. She breaks his ankles with a sledgehammer and prevents the him from escaping again. The famous hobbling scene. Oh, yeah, it's rough. Um, and then I should mention that we get this um, incredible scene from Kathy Bates where it's raining outside. She has this gun with... with um, with her and she's just so sad so monotone just empty flat. yeah she's just yeah. empty she's the color gray embodied she just comes in and she's like which i want to say it takes a very good actor to act empty like that's yeah. a thing that can come off very superficial or can come off very dull there's so much behind her emptiness, it's crazy. Like, this is she's... real depression. This isn't fake depression. That's what it actually looks like. Not the gun part necessarily, although mm, sometimes. Maybe, yeah. Um, <laughs> but what I mean to say is that, like, that she acts how depression feels when it's active. It's not that you are sad. It's not that you're like... She's just uh, empty. Yeah, yeah. Void of feeling. You've seen me when I'm in my really bad episodes. That's what I look like, right? Just like... Uh, nothing matters. Who fucking cares? Yeah, and she, you know, says to him like, like, um, I found out that I didn't just love the writer. Like, I love you. I know you don't love me. And then she's like, I've got this gun. I think I'm gonna go put some bullets in it, and just like walks outside into the rain. Yeah. Um, woof. It's the best scene in the movie. 
it's definitely the best acted, and that's saying something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have our local sheriff, Buster, who's investigating Paul's disappearance. He's, like, reading all the novels. It's actually, like, kind of cute. It's really cute. It's very Twin Peaks. Yeah. And, and then, this has been our side shot the whole time. Like, these are all intercut. Yeah. And then clues, you know, lead him to Annie's house. Um, but, and, you know, we, we play this kind of game where she sh- starts injecting Paul with these um, drugs. And it makes him, you know, pass out or, like, go limp or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, incapacitated and um, puts him in the basement and it's like she's almost scot-free but then he starts he knocks over the grill right and there's this clamoring and then Buster runs back in the house and is like Annie Annie everything good and then Paul's screaming like I'm down here I'm down here and he goes down and sees him but then right when we think that Paul is going to be saved he gets shot through the back big old double barrel blast oh yeah there's smoke coming out of it it's no joke um (laughs) buster is been busted yeah and then she attempts to kill paul in like this murder suicide she's like it's this is this 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 scene right here really gives the other one that we were just talking about a run for its money where she's like we were always meant to be together and then she starts um going on about this thing like basically saying that it needs to be a murder suicide and how beautiful it'll be. Yeah. Um, it's really well just acted because it's just a tight shot on her face. Do. Yeah. You don't see anything else. It's just a yeah. tight shot on her face. But then Paul is, has a can of lighter fluid that he's put like in his pants, basically his, um, his nature's pocket. He keeps hiding things down his dick in his butt, um, in his butt. Yeah. He convinces her, though, to let him live long enough to finish the novel in order to give misery back to the world. And he's quote. like, because he's like, yeah, no, we should both die. Yeah. But let me finish the novel first. So this is when the manuscript is done. Yeah, and Paul sorry, that asks, was my mistake. I jumped ahead. It's confusing. We get two, like, kind of big things here, like where he asks her to dinner. And now we get the, he asks for a cigarette and champagne, Dom Perignon. In case you forgot. Um, (laughs) And she returns and he's setting the manuscript on fire with that um, lighter fluid that he had in his in his um, nature's pocket, as (laughs) Topher said. Um, Annie is trying to save it. But then Paul hits her with the typewriter. That's what. So we get all these shots of him like trying to build up his strength. Yeah, he's like lifting the typewriter while he and then he'll go back to like typing. And, you know, we're just thinking like, oh, he's trying to keep up his uh, strength and mobility. It's like a like a good (laughs) injured person should. It's going to be the new Pilates. Yeah, you know, Um, it's going to be called Sheldonese. Eh, Sheldon's doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Paul Oddies. I'm doing my best over here. The last one, I just, I, I don't, I'm speechless. Um, <laughs> so now we learn why he was trying to get it up over his head, get that hey. mobility in his in his dislocated shoulder, because then he strikes her with the typewriter, just and, crushes her head with it. And of course, in true horror film fashion, our our villain is somehow like kind of superhuman, mm-hmm. where. Where we think, like, oh, that's it. Like, she's done. She comes and attacks him again um, and shoots him um, to the shoulder with the revolver. And then he trips her. Um, but we, we see that there's another gunshot. And we know that there are only two bullets in that gun because yep. of her crazy speech about the murder-suicide Yeah, she's like, thing. I will only load two bullets, one for you, one for me. So we know as viewers now there are no bullets left in that gun. Um, Always count gunshots in film. It's only going to lead to frustration or joy. I know. 
And then he trips her, causing her to hit her head on the typewriter and then crawls out of the room. But then she attacks again. Again, we get that like um, villain is a superhuman somehow because any normal person would have just been done for at least a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Not any Wilkes, baby. Yeah. But then finally he grabs a metal doorstop and bashes her in the face, which kills her. Yeah. It's a big doorstop, too. Mm hmm. I couldn't really. I thought it was like a big paperweight, but yeah, it makes sense. Um, same, same, uh, same category of things like you don't really need, but like are nice. <laughs> um, and then we flash forward to eighteen months later. Paul, they love a good title card. Oh yeah, Paul, who now walks with a cane but seems to be doing pretty fine. Other than that, meets with his agent Marsha in a restaurant in New York. Um, it looks very um, Jean George to me, like very nice. But like the nineteen um, eighties version. Oh yeah, like there are a lot of tables. There aren't that many tables at Jean George now. Um, <laughs> the two are talking about his first um, post misery novel, and Marcia tells him about the positive early buzz that he's getting good reviews from places that you know, like the Times, like places that normally you know rail him. Um, he replies that he wrote the novel for himself. Be- that he's like, oh, that's nice, but I don't really care. Um, but he it was for me it was, my it was for me process. it was yeah it was my way to deal with the horrors of all of that you know all of the trauma and then Marcia asks if he would consider a nonfiction book about his captivity but Paul who suffers all of that trauma from the experience is like no um, this is when we get some great acting from James Conn like he's good throughout it but these moments when he gets to like sit there and have these responses are just so solid Yeah, and then he sees, so he's talking and he says, like, even though it's been, like, over a year, I still, and I know she's dead. Like, I know she's dead. I I still think about her. (laughs) Um, You know, I still see her. And this is when we see Annie approaching him, like, with a cake on a a a table. And a big knife, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, we realize he's hallucinating in actuality. It's just, it's, it's just his waitress who ends up telling Paul that she's his number one fan, which is, you know, a callback to Annie, (laughs) obviously, but Paul just meekly says, that's very sweet of you while pouring sweat. And that's it. Yeah. That's the movie. That's the movie. I love this movie. This is so fun for me. I did too. I wasn't sure how how i was going to feel i actually i had never heard anything about this movie really Uh, yeah i don't know i just for some reason i i have no excuses um but i so i wasn't sure if i was gonna like it i didn't really know what i went into it not knowing at all what it was about i went into it um yeah knowing literally nothing and i was extremely surprised i this movie could have easily been kind of like boring or because the plot itself on paper isn't like incredibly intriguing. Yeah, it's not the most engaging like out the gate premise. Yeah. Yeah. But then as the plot thickens, I was very much so enthralled with this movie. I was so entertained. I was so rooting for um, Paul. Yeah, for James Caan. Yeah. yeah, I was so rooting for him against Kathy Bates, which is yeah. tough because you know love kathy bates but it was just that just means that they both did their job um, yeah yeah it totally does it's funny that you say that because basically every dude every every actor who has offered the part of paul turned it down really yeah so the list of actors has included that like there's a bunch of different ones that go around about this 
Yeah, so they offered it to William Hurt twice, Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, De Niro, Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, and Robert Redford. Mm. And Warren Beatty. Interesting. Yeah, apparently Warren Beatty is the only one who never actually turned it down. He never said no. He just didn't respond. <laughs> Ghosted. Yeah. Left him on red. Um, but he, everybody was like, well, no. Some, most of them were like, this character's way too passive. I just don't see myself playing that character. Interesting. Yeah. Feels very, um... That seems very ego-driven to me. That seems very, oh, like... Yeah. Like, I'm a man, I should be in control, which is actually what I like about this movie, that the that the male character is extremely passive. And, I mean, of course, becomes active at the end, like, fighting for his literal life. Mm-hmm. But... Um, that's so funny that that's how they read that because I actually, I love that for once it's not a woman being tortured essentially by a man. Yeah, this is the inverse of a lot of movies that we see. But yeah, no, I mean, we've seen that a hundred times over in film. Um, yeah. And this is one of the few times that we see those gender roles uh, flipped. Yeah, no, 100%. And I also love that it's, so I, I am a big fan of two-handers like this. Yeah. You know, like the cat and mouse of it all. Oh, but definitely. This is two very intelligent people going head to head, right? Yeah, it's definitely not only is it that flip, kind of like that gender flip, essentially, like just because we're so used to seeing women being, you know, tortured by men. We're also we're also sometimes in this scenario, we either have like the underdog, which kind of ends up being like it's it's a little bit feeds into the final girl trope, the underdog. Like, you're not right. thinking that much, but then they kind of, um, you end up rooting for them because they're overcoming blah, blah, blah. You know. You know the final girl They're the audience trope. stand in, yeah. Yeah, and then, um, or or you just have someone who's, you know, completely helpless and it doesn't really make sense that they're, like, they, by, almost by mistake, like, in a lot of horror comedies, people stay alive just through happenstance. Like, sure. they just miss the axe. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right, right. So I I love that you bring that up because yeah, yeah, both of these people are extremely intelligent and extremely capable of so much. Just one is good and one is evil. Yeah. And that's literally the only delineation there because Kathy Bates' character has murdered tons of people, as we find out from that scrapbook. We get the body count is like near 50 or something like that. And yet is still chilling. Yeah. Chilling. So clearly there's some wit to that and some, you know, you have to be pretty smart to not, smart slash lucky to not actually get convicted or caught um, being able to, because it said that there was a, a lack of evidence. And so that kind of puts forward this idea that she hid the evidence mm-hmm. or was able to cover her tracks enough. That takes a very meticulous, smart person to do that. Um, and then we've got our writer here who... Um, is very intelligent as well, is a very successful writer. Um, but also just a capable person. Like, we see him, even though he's like... He's resourceful. I do love the little joke about, you've written about this a hundred times, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> when he's picking the lock. Yeah. That is really cute. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that that's why this movie works, because in a lot of cat-mouse situations, you're kind of like, well, you know what's going to happen, but um, how is it going to happen is the question. Yeah, you have, like, the unkillable killer. Yeah. Um, one of our favorites is It Follows. Definitely. Which has a seemingly unkillable killer. And yeah. you just have to, like, figure it out. 
even though she is very capable uh, um oh well i can't remember her name in uh the movie anymore but i know Mi- but micah monroe about. yeah her character she's clever enough but she's not like brilliant you know right but you are like laurie strode in halloween or any name any movie yeah they're not like particularly at least in their first installments yeah it, it, they're, they're not like the strongest or the smartest or whatever they're 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 the everyman they're the average right that's the point of them that you want them to be your just like audience standard so you make them average for your protagonist absolutely and i think it's really it was really fun to witness two people pretty much on the same level just kind of different again it's kind of like good versus evil here but they're both on the same plane um as far as like competency and capabilities and um that's what made this cat mouse um, narrative really fun to watch. And again, like I said, the acting is is incredible. Like it, it's stellar in this, especially from Kathy Bates. They both do a great job, but I think just Kathy Bates is a complete standout in this movie. I mean, she won the fucking Oscar for it. She's the only person to have ever won a lead uh, lead actor or actress for a horror film. God, goals. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Her first, it was the only nomination this movie got, which is wild to me because there's some great cinematography in this. This music is amazing. Horror films always get passed over, though. I know. Um, Even if they are based on a Stephen King novel, they tend to still get passed over. Right. And we we mentioned a little bit earlier, just kind of, you know, talking about how, um, who worked on this movie and what they also worked on, like When Harry Met Sally, um, Few Good Men, uh, those types of movies, and how it really shows through in this movie because at the beginning it almost feels like it's setting it up to be some sort of like romance story it's played like that a bit yeah and i kind of love that how it just it starts out as kind of like oh she saved him she rescued him she's his biggest fan and you know he's kind of playing the game here because he knows that you know, she's helping him and, and all this stuff. But just the way that it's shot and the way that it's set up here, you're kind of like, are they, like, going to be into each other? Is this yeah, is this like an a... enemies to lovers thing? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if I didn't know off the bat it was a Stephen King movie, I would have probably assumed <laughs> that. But, you know, knowing what we know, I wasn't banking on that. But I'm just saying the way that, like, it's shot, it makes sense that they worked on When Harry Met Sally to me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Because, I mean, Reiner was coming at this. This was the first time he directed a horror film. Like, Stand By Me is not a horror film. It's, you know, coming of age. And this is a very... Ni- this came out in 1990. This is a very 1990 movie to me. Yes. Like, the way it shot. Yeah. The, it, it feels a little bit, like, weirdly shot. Like, Matilda. It feels... I don't know. There's something about it that I'm just like, yep, this movie's from the early 90s. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, it, I think it looks great for No, what, it looks great. Yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't look great because of that. It's just the style that was in at the moment. Sure, yeah. And I think Reiner created a lot of that style. I'll give oh, him, definitely. Him and, uh, 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 I think Reiner and this crew like created that style. Between the between the shots, between the editing, between just like the general like selection and everything, I think that's... And lighting and everything, they were the ones who were kind of making the style a thing. Yeah, and that's definitely... That's another thing that works in this movie. I don't know... I, I can't really put my finger on anything that doesn't work in this movie. Yeah, no, even the music's amazing. It's all all four tracks are Liberace as yeah, well. Yeah, 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 because it's Kathy Bates' character. My favorite. Yeah. God. 
It's so good. It's, <laughs> it, I mean, yeah, I can, I don't really have much um, critique on this movie. So it took like two decades for King to finally say what this movie was about, but I think it's pretty obvious. I, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, as much as The Shining was like his, his getting sober movie, this is the movie about him being trapped in addiction with Annie representing cocaine. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously he was talking, like he said, the surface level of it was he had um, released a book and people were like, um, this isn't horror. What the fuck, sir? Uh, Stephen King is terrible and I will make him write horror again. Sort of shit. But yeah, so that was the surface level one. You bring up a really good point with that because a lot of what this movie has to deal with is fans feeling some sort of overwhelming ownership Mm. to another person's art, whether that's a book, a photography, a painting, music, anything. Moving between mediums. Any, really anything that someone makes consistently, someone feeling that ownership, because there's, there's a line between being a fan and wanting more from someone like saying like, Oh my God, I can't wait. Like, I love this album. I can't wait for their next one. Or I can't wait till they tour. Like, you know, whatever. Um, and, but then there's that crossing the line where youth, well, this hypothetical person feels like they have more of a part in it than they do. Sure. Like you have to kind of, as a fan, you have to like check yourself and recognize that you are a fan of this music and, or the fan of this thing. You're putting your money forward towards this. You're obviously contributing to it, continuing like all, you know, all of that. But, and, and of course artists are usually pretty, um, pretty, excited about that idea you know thanking the fans like saying a lot of a lot of artists will say you know like i wouldn't be here if it weren't for you guys i wouldn't you know nobody would know know my music nobody would know my stuff so this movie plays a lot with that that turning the dial all the way to the left here where kathy bates character quite literally thinks that she's a bigger part in this book series than she is and it's kind of a form of psychosis for her not just kind of yeah well yeah i mean she's literally (laughs) literally um but you know what i mean though right like yeah no i mean it's the um some people get too wrapped up in it and this is kind of the nth degree audience members forget that they own their experience of the art not the artist that's a really great way of putting that thank you Uh, for tying that up in a bow for me (laughs) that's what i just i mean yeah (laughs) this happens with star it happens with any major property or artist or what have you like it happens with star wars it happens with marvel blah 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 my biggest one that i remember and this is going to be so whatever but (laughs) i was in college when mine and uh our wonderful composer Seth Hagen's uh, favorite Sufjan Stevens album came out. Yeah. Now up to that point, he had done a bunch of folk albums and that's what he was known for. Mm-hmm. And then he drops this wild, experimental, electronic heavy, swear filled <laughs> right. album that has a 25 minute, 25 minute long song at the end, during which he spends a minute and a half of it screaming, I'm not fucking around. As if he had anticipated the blowback he was going to get from his fans. <laughs> yeah. And the reaction was miserable. People hated him. Yeah. Everybody I knew who was like, I'm a diehard Sufjan fan. People who had tattoos of his stuff and shit. 
Yeah. We're like, I'll never listen to him again. He completely betrayed us. He didn't even give us the whole 50 states. It's like that was a publicity stunt, guys. We've known that since the beginning. He was never going to do 50 albums for 50 states. How yeah. much interesting is there to say about Omaha? Fair. I know Omaha's not a state. It's the only place I know in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. Lincoln. Oh, sure. Yeah, whatever. See? Couldn't even remember the one that's named after a president. So that, <laughs> d- to my point, right? So I, I, it was that sort of thing of like watching it in real time, watching like every website and every fan, all this bullshit, the internet just breaking down over, I can't believe Sufjan didn't do a folk record. It's like, okay, and neither did you. So shut the fuck up. Yeah, people, or are, people have just become too close to it and can't look at that bigger picture of saying like if an artist wants to expand their horizons per se and do something a little bit different it's like they're they're you're you're putting them in this box that they don't necessarily need to be in and maybe they do go to you know one side of the spectrum that you don't end up liking but normally what happens when an artist you know experiments with said thing is that they come back the pendulum swings the other way and then evens out yeah right so it's like they'll take certain um certain aspects of what they what they learned from going to that other side and bring it to their previous music like every artist kind of tries to find where they fit in like if you think about one of the greatest artists of all time dolly parton she's all over the place yes like sorry i started to laugh just because that's not i was like wondering who you were gonna say and of course it was dolly of course it was dolly parton i'm just thinking about how of course she's following trends here and a lot of country music artists do this as well where they kind of have like a crossover album like into pop sure, or yeah. you know she had like a disco one mm-hmm. um it's very good fully like yeah it's amazing um and she kind of after she put out that album that like disco one she kept that in some of her songs right like in i believe um i believe in Oh, and one of her later albums where she does the cover of House of the Rising Sun, it's got a lot of disco elements to it, and it's after she put out that disco album. Right. So, like, again, and but the rest of the album's pretty standard pop country. So that's kind of a perfect example of that, and I think that, I think it's rude when people just abandon artists whenever they're just, you know, as long as they're not hurting anyone, as long as they're not like being problematic or, you know, saying some sort of like turf shit or, you know, like crazy ass shit, then, you know, just let them experiment as an artist. You're, it's okay to say, I'm like, you know, maybe their biggest fan, but I didn't really like their last album. Sure. That's not, there's no problem with that. You can still say, you can even put a positive spin on it, say, this one wasn't for me, but I'm ready for the next. I'm excited yeah. for the next. I'm excited to see what they do next because they're experimenting right now. And maybe I'm not in it, but I'll hang on for a little while because people just get too emotional. And again, this is the this is this is the nth degree of that where it ends in death. <laughs> yeah. Last thing I'll say on that. Yeah. Last thing I'll say on that is that artists uh, don't owe you shit uh, whether it's in the concert or in an album or in an art style or form or what have you uh, yeah you're not owed another horror book from Stephen King you're not owed another song for, at a concert you know just because you want it doesn't mean you get it right yeah but yeah and I mean that was that was a very long aside 
um, from your original point. I wanted to make this point anyway. It was, you know, Fair on enough. my yeah. mental list. So <laughs> I could tell. I just interjected. <laughs> but uh, you were saying that, you know, that was the superficial reason. But the deeper reason you were saying was uh, his his addiction to cocaine. Like yeah. Kathy Bates was yeah. representing addiction to cocoa. Yeah, <laughs> the, the cocaine. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, she... Uh, he, he later ended up like talking about this, but it took like 20 years after this came out. He was like, I just don't want to talk about it, blah, blah, blah. He would just be like, oh, yeah, it was the fans, it was the fans, it was the fans. He's like, dude, it's clearly about Coke. And finally, someone annoyed him enough that he was like, watch the fucking film, read the fucking book, and know what I've said publicly about my addiction to drugs and alcohol. It's about addiction. I'm clearly the writer in bed who wants to do something different with his life. And the thing that is literally cutting me off from doing that, because in the book she chops off his leg instead of uh, hobbling him. Yeah. Uh, But the thing that cuts me off from being able to do that is addiction. Yeah. I (laughs) Being forced to sit down and write some more bullshit that I don't want to write is drugs and alcohol. I don't think I would have gotten that. Um, without no, but I didn't really know that he had addiction problems. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I would have gotten that without someone else saying it like you just did. Um, That's, I mean, it's fair. It was more like him being frustrated by being asked a thousand times. I mean, I kind of understand it though, because if you also as an artist, you, you know, are allowed to have some sort of control over how people view your art and how, how how you are viewed through that art because Mm -hmm. like, that's just, you know, that's just your right. (laughs) Um, it, to a certain degree, of course there is, you know, then you, you bring in capitalism and it kind of messes that all up. But, but with, uh, with that idea, I kind of understand it. Like you don't, then you feel, you know, it's like when John Mulaney came out saying that he was going to rehab for addiction and everything like that, then all eyes, all eyes are on you. Especially if you've put something out, like he put out his, his, um, his special where he kind of talks a lot about it and everything, which is good. Maybe that was therapeutic for him, but I can kind of understand Stephen King wanting to keep that to himself. Just like how Paul at the end says, says, I don't care about the feedback from this new book. This mm-hmm. was for me. And this was my yeah. process. And that's his, that's, that's Stephen King in self inserting again, just being like, yeah, this is, this for was, me. this was therapy for me. This yeah. was my rehab. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of I kind of understand that because whenever I feel like someone who's in the spotlight in any sort of which way comes out and says that they have like an addiction, whether it's the paparazzi or the media or just general like fans see that you're like out, mm-hmm. you know, they just assume that you're doing poorly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I can I can definitely understand that. Yeah. And so I but I also think it's just a really clever um, it. it I think a lot of times that when the second that we get into allegory, anybody like, or you, you know, a given us, right. Whoever, whoever's watching it, I think just the audience members in general, and I'm putting myself in there. The second we see allegory, we go, damn, that's so deep or, Oh wow. That's such a brilliant way of doing that. Yeah. And like, and there's, there's good cases of it. Babadook, we already mentioned it follows like, but I would put this right up there with those. I think this is one of the best allegorical stories about addiction I've ever seen. Yeah, and it doesn't beat you over the head. Like I said, I wouldn't. I don't think I would have put two and two together if you hadn't have said that. Now it makes a lot of sense now that you explained it. But I, I like that. I like that you can kind of experience it in many different ways. You could go into it knowing that it is allegorical or you could right. go into it not knowing that and just enjoying the story. Like, I think 
I think any sort of horror film that's also an allegory would would be a failed allegory if you can't enjoy it without understanding the allegory. You know right. what I mean? Like right. you you have to go at it from different angles here, and I think that this movie is a really great example of being able to do so. I would completely agree with that. Um, yeah, you want to get to just like some fun facts about I would the movie love to round to us hear out? Some fun facts to end. I love ending on fun. <laughs> so obviously there's a bunch of differences from the novel. The biggest one I already mentioned. There has to be, yeah. Yeah, you have to. And that, this you, is a fact. Yeah. I haven't even talked about how great an adaptation this is. Like Reiner, his own interpretation. This is why, I'll, that's the last thing I'll say about adaptation and allegory, blah, blah, blah. But it was for him. He was like, he felt like he was going to be a failure coming out of um, All in the Family mm. and doing comedies and things like that. Right out of that, people were like, because he was like, I'm 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 the clown. I'm I've been a clown on one of the most biggest shows in America for eight years. How am I going to do anything else? Yeah. And so he really related to Paul, reading this book because he didn't want to do this after Stand by Me. He was like, I don't want to do another Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. Um, and King did, King was like, I don't want another adaptation of my work. But then he saw Stand by Me, and Paul and Reiner read um, Misery, and they were both like, Ugh. <laughs> just like two cavemen that's how yeah. that's how writers rooms work it's not far off sometimes yeah so like i said so that, that, that's all that but the adaptation is fantastic and one of the reasons the adaptation is fantastic is because they made good choices about how to adapt it one of those choices was yes instead of um annie cutting off paul's leg with an axe and cauterizing the wound mm-hmm. uh they have her hobble him initially so yeah so that's that's how they fixed it and goldman was like no but that's why that was the whole reason i wanted to do the movie Mm -hmm. and so but then he finally saw the cut the uh the actual scene he was like "Eh, no you're right that works way better on film yeah they also wanted to keep the gore down um this is a very light for for a movie like this this is a very light gore yeah, if you were if if someone if a current director were to adapt it, it would be a lot more gory. Definitely, because there's also a scene in the book where she runs down a policeman with a uh, a lawnmower, Ooh. which again I'm really glad Rob Reiner cut because that would have been really too silly. Yeah, that would have brought this a little into the camp realm. It's different reading yeah. it than like having to like see it. I think. Yeah. You know. And then, like, last thing I'll say on adaptation, he. Uh, so in the book, Paul actually is a recovering addict. Oh, okay. Well, so, that makes that a little more overt. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kept in because of the cigarette thing. That's their like nod to it. Oh, because he quit and he only has one Whenever when he finishes, he finishes a book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the same with the drinking, right? Right. Uh, he has one glass of his Dom Perignon. Well, maybe maybe that's true in the book, but in the movie, it's clearly not since they have red wine at dinner. Right. Yeah. But I think it's, I'm getting I think nitpicky, it's, yeah, but you know what I mean. Exactly. But yeah, so Novril is a real uh, medication. I went and looked this up. Uh, it's a form of codeine. Okay. So, you know, super addictive. <laughs> she had like stockpiles of medication in there. I'm like, I don't, I get that you're like a nurse or were a nurse, whatever, got fired for killing infants. But I f- it's like a supply room of just like, or at least a cabinet of just hard stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, that's pretty crazy to me. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, but yeah, so he does get... In the book, it's a lot longer. It's like months and months that he's captive. Yikes. And so he gets fully addicted again. Oh. 
and like because... so the book is darker it sounds like oh yeah by the ending of the book he's like so we get the nod to it at the end of the film but it's a lot brighter mm-hmm. of like acceptance the end of the book uh he has a prosthetic leg mm-hmm. because he's had it chopped off but still struggles with nightmares about her which we see yeah but he's also having withdrawal from painkillers he's drinking heavily again and he has writer's block and so the the hopeful moment at the end is that he actually does find some random inspiration for a new story and just absolutely breaks down crying mm. uh in like a joy joyful way damn yeah but also it's like it's like hinted that it's also because his life is so broken oof so it's like a little like one two ptsd yeah so apparently so last couple facts uh con and uh bates were, had a really hard time working together this was her first major film, and she had such a theater background that she was all rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Khan had been in film so long, he's like, no, let's go. Right. It's like, no, we're acting now. Let's do the acting thing. Let's mm-hmm. do f- fuck rehearsal. Let's act and react, right? Let's go. Right. And she would get so frustrated with him, and she would just like, go to Rob Reiner. She'd be like, I just, he doesn't want to rehearse. He doesn't want to do anything. I just don't understand. I just want to get this right. And she's nervous, understandably. It's her first major film. Of Under an acclaimed director and with an acclaimed actor. Dude was in the fucking Godfather, right? Yeah. So Reiner, being the good director that he is, he's like, dude, use the frustration then. When the, when you need it in those moments, pull on that. Like, when you need to be frustrated with him for not finishing the book that you need finished for everything in your life, as Annie Wilkes, <laughs> look at Jim and be like, yo, fuck you. <laughs> right. Sounds like he was just like, I'm not going to make this guy do anything that he doesn't want to do. So leave me alone. Use it. Like, that's such a throwaway thing that acting teachers and acting teachers who don't know what else to say. And then directors alike just say that like, okay, yeah, fine. Like, just, you know, use it. He did make him do more rehearsal than he wanted to. Reiner did sort of mediate it. He was like, all right, we're going to compromise. Kathy, we're doing less than you want. James, we're doing more than you want. And James just goes, meh. (laughs) <laughs> obliges because he is a professional mm-hmm. although he did show up to set uh one day so hungover that every take they used was unusable oh no and reiner's That's some like elaine stretch shit right <laughs> so reiner's like oh yeah sorry man we have to cut reshoot everything something went wrong in the labs and comes like all right sure whatever fine yeah let's just redo it that's no problem so they redo it and then later he finds out that there's no such thing as the labs. Oh, yikes. <laughs> and he goes, well, fuck, man. You should have just told me I was piss-ass fucking hungover. Like, yeah. And then he just pays for everything. I love James Conn, dude. <laughs> That's so funny. He, uh, people were like, ah, sorry, I'm just now thinking about James Conn. There was this interview with him. Yeah, I know. Um, but there was an interview with him where someone's like, you know he's spending a lot of money and like on really nice things. He goes, uh-huh. And they're like, so like... What, you don't ever save any money? He goes, no, fuck no. I never saved any fucking money. I got friends and family to spend it on. Why the f- I don't I don't take it with me. Why the fuck would I not spend my fucking money? That's funny. Yeah, he was just like, no, I love my friends. I love my family. I like just giving money to people because I have it. They don't. Let's go. I wish you'd give some money to me. Well, you're not in his will. Mm. I don't think so, at least. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't aware if I, if I was. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, I mean, there's so many other really cool things that you can talk about this movie. This movie's been just combed over to death because it was such a uh, sort of sleeper hit. Yeah. But yeah, that's about what I have to say for... That concludes your fun facts. My fun facts. 
I love the fun facts. And actually, sorry, I was wrong. The fact I said earlier, she is not the only person to have ever won the Oscar for Best Actress because Natalie Portman won it for Black Swan. She for was a the horror first, film. Though? She was the first. She was the first, but not the only. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Because um, the first performer to win an Oscar for a horror film was Frederick March in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then uh, Ruth Gordon as the neighbor in Rosemary's Baby. Okay. Miss um, Saperstein? No, it's Dr. Saperstein. What's the neighbors? Oh, well. Um, and that was for supporting role. Hopkins and Foster both won uh, Best Actor and Best Actress in Silence of the Lambs, but that was the following year. Yeah. And then Natalie Portman in 2010 with Black Swan. Gotcha. Yeah. Very cool. Right. So it sounds like Kathy Bates opened some doors. A little bit. We love that. Hell yeah. Well, with that being said, you guys know where to find us. We're on Instagram at Horror Babes Podcast. We're on Twitter at Horror Babes Pod. And we have a little website, horrorbabespod.com. If you're enjoying us, give us a nice rating review on either Spotify or iTunes. We love hearing your feedback. Our DMs are also always open on Instagram. Let us know what you think, if you have any suggestions or requests. And then until next time, bye, bye babes. Hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Thank <laughs> you.